Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Hammond B3 master and legend Tony Monaco. He began working in jazz clubs as a teenager in his native Columbus, Ohio. He was inspired by local Oregon gurus Hank Marr and Don Patterson. He even got instruction and advice from the great Jimmy Smith. And in addition to the music, he's been a businessman for years. In fact, after graduating from college with a BSBA from Franklin University in 89, he became the supervisor of Monaco Concrete. Over the years, he's been all over the place and with so many talented cats. He's also an instructor, and he's produced a series of instructional DVDs titled Playing Jazz Hammond. Tony is always dabbing in business, music, and staying cool. So please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Tony, hey, it's an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. I love your jazz bio, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you. Oh, thanks, Joe. I do, too. So... Let me go ahead and start off here and ask mm-hmm. you what has you're always a busy guy. What has been going on lately? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must be busy if you're a musician if you want to try to make a living. <laughs> yeah. uh, I teach. I, I tell you what I do. I I, I take the uh, a business approach to to a diversified portfolio, but under a manageable portfolio, so to speak. Because if you let anything get away from you, you know, your performance suffers, and that's what kind of gives you the license to do other things, right? So I always got to keep myself up as a performer first. Absolutely. You know, and then, then that keeps the name going around, you know, like producing new records and coming out with new stuff and so that you keep attracting, you know. But I make my consistent living. I stumbled upon this all by accident. Uh, I teach online lessons to people all around the world, you know. Like I just got off the phone with Arkansas, but earlier this morning I was, God, I don't know if I look at my schedule, I was all over the world, you know. And the Internet allows me to do that with some, you know, uh, a little bit of uh, effort on learning computer programs and how to use it. I'm able to either hook up with a student in, you know, China and send MIDI data in real time and have a lesson in real time where they see my keyboard on top of their computer and I see them and we, we talk and and have a lesson and play this and play that and it's all recorded. Beautiful. So it's even better than a live lesson because they can review it over and over. So I teach online students and then I started a degree program at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. I don't know if you're familiar with that college. It's a Little, uh, you know, a reformist college out on the east, uh, uh, west coast of Michigan, off the, uh, opposite Chicago. You know. Yeah. And this year, uh, we've enrolled our first, uh, student that will graduate hopefully in four years, not only as a music major with, but with emphasis on jazz organ as its instrument. And that has not existed ever. This is all new territory because I'm trying very hard to legitimize uh, what it is that we do that everybody respects so highly, uh, but yet uh, doesn't give us the credit because there's no stuff out there to credit. So you always hear about organ players being like the that another little group, you know. <laughs> Sometimes the organ wasn't even accepted as a real jazz instrument, you know. Yeah. And so the organ, though, as a, as a result, has become like its own little energy. You know, it's got its thing, you know, but it's small. Well, let's get into that a little bit about the Hammond mm-hmm. B3. It is kind of one mm-hmm. of those things like the vibraphone and jazz. It's kind of mm-hmm. pigeonholed, but it's such a grand sound. 
But let me ask you this: what What was it about your childhood that got you involved with the Hornet B three? I was 12 years old, and I was playing the accordion, and uh, my dad had a little wedding band. And they had a four-piece band, a bass player, accordion player, a drummer, my dad, and then he was the drummer, and then a sax player, right? So when uh, they decided they wanted to make a little bit more money, so the accordion player went out and bought a little organ, a Farfisa organ, so that they could let go of the bass player and split the money among three. So he went out and bought some Jimmy Smith records because he bought an organ, right? So he wanted to hear the organ music. And he bought some organ records. And he bought a couple of Jimmy Smith records that evidently wasn't his thing, right? Mm -hmm. So I was at the rehearsal when my, when with the three of them rehearsing as a trio. And at the end of the rehearsal, and I remember the sound of the, even that electric Farfisa was cool. You know, it was different than an accordion sound for sure. He gave me this Jimmy Smith double album set, Jimmy Smith's Greatest Hits. And he, his exact words to me, I could still see his eyes when he handed me the, the record. He says, I don't like this kind of music, but you should check it out. Maybe you might like it. And that's all it took. And I went into my uh, bedroom upstairs where I was playing 45s of the Beatles, you know, because we're talking late 60s here. Took off the little adapter and had to switch it over to 33. And the first song was the whole album side. It was called The the Sermon. It was a 22-minute song. That was the first jazz song I ever heard in my life. I always heard mazurkas, polkas, everything, Italian uh, upbringing. Yeah, sure. And before that track was halfway through, I was just I was that was it I was there I was I'm there now never yeah beautiful let me ask you this what did you learn from Jimmy Smith I know by osmosis you're going to learn a lot but what did you learn about being a musician and being a person well there's a couple things I learned that I'd like to be like and there's a couple things I learned that I didn't want to be like right you learn that from everybody you know no one's perfect what I loved about and learned from Jimmy Smith was the fact that he always played with passion and determination. Besides the words that he was telling me in his mouth and the notes that he played too fast that I couldn't figure out, I always can feel his heart in the music. And Jimmy had a special heart for playing music. And that's what I picked up most, my attitude about playing music. Yeah. I sit down at the organ, you got to have kind of a little bit of a humble but eager and aggressive attitude. Yeah, that's what it takes to be an organ player. You got to be on top of. The one thing that's that's cool too. When I was reading in your bio, you started playing in the clubs of Columbus as a teenager mm-hmm. uh, with with a couple of gurus like Hank Marr and Don Patterson. Mm-hmm. What what was that like? How fast did you grow into the instrument with those guys? Once I hit the you know I hit the ground running when I started playing the accordion. I guess some so some people are just given the gift or whatever they call it. I like to call it a gift. So I was winning national contests right after I started playing the accordion within eight months because I didn't even need to read the music. I just picked it up and played it. You know, if I could hear it, I could play it. That's what most jazz musicians are like, right? When I started playing the organ, the the thing that really made it excel was the fact that I never stopped practicing. I practiced all the time. And I listened and I practiced and I listened and I tried to go back and play what I heard. My father bought me an instrument when I was 13, which was an interesting instrument. It was called the Cordovox. And what it was was an accordion that had electronic 
connections to it that went to a tone generator, and it sounded like a Hammond B3 through a Leslie speaker. I played a lot of gigs in my younger teens from 13 to about 16 with this accordion that sounded like the B3. It was the recordings from that that accordion that got Jimmy's attention that that he called me. Because I was playing his stuff on accordion, and it sounded like the B3. You know, and the first thing he told me was that I play too many notes and that I needed to learn how to play the right chords. <laughs> and I guess that's a lesson we all learn, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, what? that's what happened. But my father also was very instrumental in knowing that I had the talent, so he put me in the spots where I needed to be to get it. Like, he'd bring me to the Chitlin Clubs when I was underage to yeah. listen to Hank Marr, to listen to Bobby Pierce, you know. So here I'm at 13 or 14 years old, the only white kid in a Chitlins gig, and I'm listening to the best organ players in the world. And I wanted to be them. So I got more of it just by being in the Chitlin clubs listening to the music. Because that that sort of like built up my desire to want to go to be there. Because when they would ask me to sit in as I was starting to learn, and, you know, their jam sessions that they would hold, and I'd be asked to sit in, you know how jam sessions are. I would always get a warm welcome from the crowd, you know. They would always, like, encourage me, like, man, you sound really good. Or they would say things like, pardon my expression, but this is reality. They would say, you're not really white, are you? They'd say, you're Italian. Oh, yeah. They could, they could accept me as being Italian. And that meant a lot to me. Because you got to remember, we're talking about, you know, early 70s. You know, it's a little bit of time ago when there was a little bit of difference still. Or a lot, a lot of difference. And... But I got accepted, and that helped me become better because yeah. they wanted to hear me be my best, and they accepted me. And to be accepted by a group that's not you is a big deal when you're a teenager. You know, yeah. These are not my high school peers or grade school peers. This is a group of people that play the music that I respect so highly that's accepted me. And that, I think that that's a real reason why I'm still here. My dad actually grew up in Brooklyn, was born in 42, full-blooded Italian, came, half of his blood came from Sicily, half of it came from Naples, and personally, I've been fortunate to go to the old country, but I've heard all the stories and kind of how everything in society kind of factioned out, and there was a lot of acceptance with him, and what I find interesting with your lineage here is you ran your, your own restaurant and played in there. What was that like for you? It seems like there's a part of you that's really embedded in that businessman mode. Is that true? Are you kind of part musician, part businessman? How how are you parlayed out? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I'm I'm in the music business. And when you say music business, it's 20% music and 80% business. And I understand a little bit about the 80% part. And so I use uh, my college degree was in business uh, uh, management. I didn't even go to music college. My father wouldn't let me go. He says, you're not going to make any money. <laughs> he wouldn't let me go to music college. You know the old man, you know the old Italian guys. They oh, were strong. Yeah. And so I went to business college, and I ran businesses for my father. I ran the restaurant business for 10 years, and then I needed to make more money, and he had a construction business. And after I left my father and went into sales for a few years, and then went into working at an advertising agency under a broadcast producer because I wanted to learn how to produce. Then he he asked me to run his construction business. So I've always been uh, like the family businessman running guy. I was trained that way from a young child. 
I had a checkbook when I used to go play gigs at 13 years old, and I had to write the checks to all the guys and get the money and deposit the money. Those were the things that I had to learn right away. My father made sure I knew how to do that. So, yeah, do I do I take the businessman approach? I must because, as you know, as the Internet has now become everybody's screaming, how do you how do you punch through? Well, you got to have something, and you got to know how to put the sizzle on the stake. I'm good at that. I know how to highlight the points to get people's interest, and then I know how to think with my head when I've got the opportunity to make a business deal. Is this long-term or short-term? Because you have to treat deals differently, right? If it's a short-term deal, you want to make as much money as you can real quick. But if it's yeah. a student, you want to try to set it at a price where they keep coming back so you've got job security. That's not even really business sense. I think that's just street smart. I think business and street smarts go together. That it does. The one thing I really dig, too, I wanted to mention kind of as a side note, your website is probably one of the most creative uh, inventive websites. I think there's been some out there that Jazzcast have put out that, that really kind of tap into who they are, but the way you tailored yours is awfully, awfully cool. I dig it. Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm going to yeah. try to do an overhaul and make it easier. You know, the, the you got to keep making things easier. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Speaking of making things easier, in April yeah. 2000, Joey D. Francesco offered to produce your debut CD. That had to be a big, huge moment for the clout that Joey has on that instrument. Oh, you know it does, and, and I wasn't even looking for it. That's where the, the beauty of this really lies. My father had died in 1999 in October, just shy of 65 years old. And as I was running the family businesses, I even had to take times where, you know, music really had to take the back seat, you know. And so the two years of leading up to my father's death, he had lung cancer. You know, I had to pretty much stop playing music because I was running all of the businesses, trying to liquidate the restaurant business to get that out from underneath me before he passed because it would be too much for me to try to deal with all of that. So I sold the restaurant while he was dying, and then um, he died. And I was making a lot of money with the construction business at that time. You know, I hadn't played in a while. And this guy called me. His name was Jim Maneri. He's a local great piano player. And they were opening up a new jazz club called the 501. And he called me and said, hey, we're opening up this new jazz club, and I thought you should know because you're an organ player that we're bringing in Joey. And I didn't know Joey very well because I stopped buying records you know, long before his success, if you know what I'm saying. I didn't buy records anymore. You know? Sure. I knew his name because I'd heard it through the grapevine, but I hadn't heard his music you know, because I wasn't. there was no jazz organ radio station and there was no internet station at that time either that I knew of, anyhow. So I said, you know, it would be really nice. I'll bet he gets tired of restaurant food. Do you think it would be okay if I take him out to dinner? And I just wanted to do it from, you know, one Italian to another. I love the organ, and here comes an organ player, and I got some money. Let me take him out to dinner. The, the coincidence was that when I had to go pick him up, they told me to go pick him up at Fort Hayes Career Center. He was giving a, an afternoon clinic. And I walked in with all my kind of dirty clothes because I just come from the field, you know. And I'm standing out in the audience, and uh, one of the guys in the audience said, "Hey, Joey, this is Tony Monaco." And he, Joey waved at me and said, "Hi, Tony. That's the guy taking me out to dinner tonight." And the guy said, "The guy said back to Joey, he says, yeah, but you should hear him play the organ.' He didn't know I played the organ. I didn't want to tell him.'" 
because it wasn't about that. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes things are not about that. And I wasn't in no position to deliver anything anyhow. I hadn't been playing in a couple of years, you know. Joey says, hey, come and sit down on the organ. I hadn't played the organ in two years, man, you know. And I was nervous. My legs were shaking. That's all I remember. <laughs> and and Byron was on my right because Byron was with him at the clinic. Byron Landon is drummer at the time. Great drummer, you know. And I just copped the groove, man. I copped the groove, and I know how to groove. You know, that's something you don't ever lose. You might lose your facilities because you don't use them enough, but you can still groove, you know. So I caught that groove, and he liked it. And his eyes lit up. And when I was taking him out to dinner, he said to me, he says, you should let me produce you. And I said, Joey, you know, I got kids and all this stuff. And he said, no, you should do it. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, I should do it so that my kids at least know that one time their father played the organ. Yeah. I had no idea, you know, what was coming. But then I got the taste, you know. Yeah. I went to the session, and the organ, the record came out really nice. Burning Grooves was the cop of the record at the time. And, you know, I saw the the, the fun that it, it appeared that everybody was having doing this, and I, I got the fever again, you know. <laughs> and um, I went to New York. Joey was going to try to help me get a record deal with Concord Records. But, you know, at the time, uh, back then, Concord was even disassembling small jazz projects, you know. They were, they were all getting away from that. So I went to New York at the IAJE convention, and I went with this record in my hand that I put on my salesman shoes. And I went through that, I call it the bull pit. Have you ever been to those old IAG conventions? I have not. Uh, well, you know, they're all, they're supposed to be about education, but in the middle of the convention, they have this, like, place where vendors go. And so that's where you find, you know, schools trying to sell to students that want to pick up a degree, you know or record labels trying to fish or find artists, or agents trying to find, you know, it's a, it's a place that you can meet in the industry, you know. And I'm good at that because I've been in sales a long time. I know how to quickly, you know, get the people that are important and know how to follow through. And I met these really cool guys in Phoenix, Arizona with Summit Records. They were real, you know. Yeah, sure, Absolutely. They weren't, they didn't give me the feeling like, cause you know in this music business, Giuseppe, uh, there's a lot of shadiness too. It's yeah. not all 100% straight business out there. Some of the guys, they were just like Midwest guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I, I related with them and I put out burning groups. And I decided to do this now, okay? So and I didn't have a big record label that was going to fund everything for me. So once I made the decision to release it, then I had to put some money behind it, you know. That's yeah. the scary part that most people will usually back out. And I put a lot of money into it, into hiring a really good radio guy, really good press people, you know, all those kind of things. But those are the things that I knew I could do, you know what I mean, control things that I met people in the industry at these conventions. This is the best radio guy. These are the great press people. I put all these teams together. And my record was scheduled, and it came out on September 7th, 2001. Wow. Four days before the big uh, uh, September 11th. Yeah, wow. And I had ads bought. I had I, I had per- personally purchased ads in Keyboard Magazine, Jazz Times, Downbeat, Jazz Is, uh, All About Jazz, 
I bought ads to advertise the record. I paid the radio promoter and the press promoter. The record came out. I was really excited, and then September 11th happened, and everything I had purchased that you can't get your money back uh, basically got pushed to the side as the news was about bombings and terrorism for months. Wow. So the record label knew that I put about twenty, thirty grand into that project, and you know they including going to record and paying the guys and all that stuff. That's a lot of money. That's not yeah. a small pocket change even today. You know. Sure. So the record label guy called me and he says, "Tony, man, I'm, I'm, you, you deserve more than this. I, you got to put another one out." So I just did a little session for this guy named Eric Niemeyer. He was the the jazz. Improv magazine guy. Do you remember yeah. that magazine, Jazz Improv? Yep, absolutely. He hired Mark Elf and a couple of other people, uh, Donnie McCaslin, and, you know, Johnny was coming up at the time. And, and so I did this session. So I thought about, you know, geez, maybe I should call some of the cats I just recorded with. So I called Donnie, and Donnie said, yes, I'll do it. So I wrote some charts. He brought Kenny Rampton, this trumpet player that used to play with McGriff. And I used a trombone player that that's, was having some success of her own from Columbus named Sarah Morrow. I put those three together, and I wrote some charts, and I came out with my second record called Master Chops T, which was a more produced kind of record. And once again, I put 20 grand in that. It hit. It hit. Still, if you go to listen to XM Radio, they play our version of So May It Secretly Begin, not, not uh, more than probably the other version. Yeah, you know uh, what's his name? Uh, Pat Metheny's tune. Yeah, sure. So they, it's on. I recorded that version, a, a version on Master Chops T, and it still gets played all the time on XM Radio. Isn't that nice. weird? Yeah, that's wild. You never know, right? Yeah. So anyhow, sure. that record helped get myself out again, and I started getting some really good reviews. And then you know the history is I keep putting out records, and that keeps my name. It's time to put out another one. You know. It's hard, though, because you've got to invest in your own self today. That's the one thing I wanted to ask you. You know, when you look down the road of your career, you know, you've been a businessman, you're a music man. How do you feel about your career up to this point? The albums you release, you've played with a lot of really heavy hitters like Matt Wilson and Harvey Mason and, you know, Lewis Nash and all kinds of people. How do you, how do you feel about your career in music? Um, I don't think I'll ever be satisfied with what I could do musically. I want to do some new things. But I, you know, I can't complain. It's been, it's been, been, and it continues to be like tomorrow. I'll be playing in New Orleans with Stanton Moore and Fareed Hawk. You know, those aren't big names, you know. And then I'll be playing uh, the following week with Harvey in Virginia. And then this Java Jazz, they hired me for the 12th consecutive year, and they've assigned me as music artist in resident. I play with Dee Dee Bridgewater, Harvey Mason, Chuck Loeb. I play with everybody there. And those helped get me experiences. That's how I got the gig with Pat. He, you know, Harvey hired Pat to play with him and me. And Pat was on a tour with me and Harvey. And at the end of that tour, Pat asked me to go tour with him. So you got to keep showing up and putting yourself, so how do I feel about it? Well, I think I could have done better. Everybody thinks that, right? God, I could have done a lot worse, too. Yeah. Know? Yeah, without a doubt. So, I make a living. I'm not broke. I'm, I, you know, so I don't think I'm being foolish. I don't make like I used to make when I had the construction business. That's a whole different thing. But I don't know that I want that headache anymore, to be honest with you. 
Sure, without a doubt. Well, you know, your music has moved a lot of people over the years. What's one of the nicest things that a fan has ever said to you about your music? I don't know that I can pinpoint any one particular thing at the moment, but I know that my fans give me the strength to carry on, and they love me, and I love them. Uh, the fan relationship is a very important one, you know. And it's not like, you know, it's easy when you get big-headed and you're young to blow all those things off as just being there. Yeah. But if you don't treasure those things and nurture those things, they go away. And you you hear of the artist at the end of their career that has no fans because they they basically pushed them all away. I respect my fans. I try to give them 100% of myself every show, no matter how I feel. Let me ask you a general question. Why do you love jazz? Uh, Freedom of expression. And I'm I'm a real type A. I get bored real easy. So um, jazz keeps me interested in gates because there's always a new combination to discover or rediscover. And that's the beautiful thing about music. It's accumulative. It never ends. It's not the same whole, um, you know, it's always something new. So let me ask you this. This is kind of, I kind of want to get to the crux of who you are. Everyone has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, the fans, the business people. But when you wake up and you face the day, who do you think you are? <laughs> I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I'm just, just going. <laughs> uh, no, I know what I am. I'm a very serious family man. You know, I have a new wife and a four mo- uh, 11-month-old baby. And I have three daughters and three granddaughters. So I love children. I love family. I love to work really hard. I like to feel like I earned my my way. I, 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 that's who I am. I just work really hard. Without a doubt. And I love the music. Tony, thank you for opening up. Thank you for taking some time out and opening your world up for me. My listeners, I have no doubt, are going to love listening to what you have to say and, and your music. So I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, but I also want to add to that work really hard. That also means, like, you know, I've got this gig coming up tomorrow and Saturday with some pretty big heavy hitters in New Orleans during this convention. That means a lot to me. So yesterday morning and this morning when I woke up, I played for two hours before I did anything, and that's part of work, you know, practicing and, you know, and then I get on my online. I've just taught five students uh, today and, uh, you know, it's been a successful day, and it isn't over. And I, the problem is when you're a full-time musician, you never really clock out. Even when they're clocked out, you check on Facebook to see what's going on, what's happening, who's talking about you, is there anything you need to fix, you know, any fires <laughs> you need to put out. So when you're in a sole proprietor business like this that never quits, you never quit. And that's the hardest part about being a full-time musician is knowing when to punch out. That's the hardest one for me. I get sometimes over-exhaust just because I don't know when to punch out. Uh, that's the hardest part about it. But the reward is this interview, meeting you, having a chance to talk to some people. You know, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. There's always some sort of payoff for sure. Well, Tony, thanks Thanks for giving me this opportunity, Joe. Oh, man, it's an honor. I've I've been looking forward to it. I know we connected some months back, and I definitely wanted to make sure we reconnected. Thank you again for your time. Love you, Joe. Thanks for the opportunity, and I hope you have a wonderful year. You too, sir. Take it easy.
All right, brother. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Kansas City, Ohio, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Tony for his time, his stories, and all of that music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.